Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. This is the first episode for the New Testament, and this is an introduction to the New Testament, Text and Context with Dr. David Peck. Welcome, Dr. Peck. Thank you for having me. Dr. Peck was a member of the history faculty at BYU-Idaho. He started teaching at Ricks College in 1993. He has taught over 30 different courses in five separate departments at BYU-Idaho. He holds a PhD in the history of the modern Middle East, classical Islamic civilization, and modern Europe, and a Juris Doctor degree in law from S.J. Quinney School of Law, University of Utah. He received the United States Department of State Fulbright Nehru Lecture Grant for 2010 through 2011 and taught comparative civil liberties and comparative jurisprudence at the University of Delhi Faculty of Law in India. He served on the Department of State and CIES National Peer Review and Fulbright Selection Committee for South Asia. His publications include articles and book reviews for the Journal of the India Law Institute, the flagship legal research institute for India, focusing on capital punishment and free speech. His LDS-related publications include essays on plural marriage and a forthcoming essay on comparative theology involving Mormonism and Islam, published by Oxford University Press. His current research compares LDS and Sufi conceptualizations of pre-mortality. He's married to Rachel Peck, also a former member of the faculty of BYU-Idaho in foreign languages. They have five children and four grandchildren. Again, welcome, David and Ben of course, is with me. Good to have you with me, Ben. Good to be here. Thanks. I'm ready to go. (laughs) So Christopher, we wanted to bring David in on this. I should say you had the idea of bringing David in on this, and I thought it was wonderful because David can help us bring some historical context here in particular and, and other types of context as well as we begin a reading of the New Testament. You know, you mentioned in the intro, Christopher, that we're going to talk about context and text or text and context. I'm not sure which order, probably context and then text, right? <laughs> yes. So we're talking historical context. We're talking cultural context of the time. We're talking different traditions that were going on leading into that. We're going to touch a bit on some of the dating and purposes of the texts themselves, like the different books in the New Testament, but we're mostly going to leave that to when we get to those readings themselves. We were noting, Christopher, how the Come Follow Me this time, and I guess in previous times when they did New Testament, even though it wasn't necessarily called Come Follow Me, right? It doesn't organize it by book. You know, we're not doing all of Matthew first and then all of Mark and then all of Luke and then all of John, right? We're we're taking Matthew 1 and Mark 1 or something like that and going through. And that's going to present its own sort of challenges to how we go into the New Testament. But we think that as we provide this historical context, that it will help us then 
move into those with a lot better tools of how we approach this text and understand what we are to get from it. Yeah. Well, let's start with context, as, as you said, Ben, with historical context. That's why we have David here. He's the historian. Dr. Peck, thank you again for being with us. Oh, of course. Please tell us about the context of, <laughs> of the New Testament. Well, I guess there's a couple of ways to broadly approach even the question of context for the Bible as a whole, but especially for the New Testament. As far as both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's very important to note the ways in which the Israelites interacted with the empires around them in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, principally centered around the cities of Babylon and such. And so we, Nineveh, there was a very important change that takes place between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that more familiar empire-driven, in fact, mostly ethnically centered empires that were familiar in the Old Testament are going to change dramatically in the 4th century BC. That is after the close of the Old Testament as we know it in the church and not including the apocryphal books of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And that is the events associated with Alexander the Great in the fourth century. So in the year 330 BC, Alexander is going to emerge in a very big way in the area of Palestine. He's going to be conquering that area in Egypt and then moving into the Persian Empire to the east and is essentially going to create a unified kingdom, although it was very brief, a kingdom that would stretch all the way from Central Asia into Greece and into Egypt and what we today call Libya, and bringing all of those regions under one rule. It's short-lived in the sense that he dies in the year 323 BC, and when he dies, this massive unified empire, arguably the largest empire known in the world to that date, although it only lasted a decade, maybe, it was going to break up into a series of smaller kingdoms, ones that are mostly controlled by his generals. And they're going to be called the Hellenistic kingdoms. And these are going to have a profound influence on the way the New Testament emerges. Just to touch on them very briefly, these kingdoms are named after his generals, Seleucus and Ptolemy, etc. And so we're going to have Seleucid Persia, which is going to last from 323 to about 64 BC. In other words, it's going to last right to when the Romans are going to appear and have a lot to do with the political and cultural situation in Palestine. Also, the Ptolemies are going to govern Egypt and part of what we call Libya today. And the last Ptolemaic ruler was Cleopatra. And so we're going to have the Greeks in Egypt, and that's going to have profound religious effects later in the time of Paul in the New Testament. There's a religious heritage that's going to come from both Persia and in Egypt and in Greece. The third one is the Antigonid Kingdom in Greece, Syria, and Asia Minor. So you're going to essentially have the Seleucid Persian Empire to the east and include Palestine. You're going to have the Ptolemaic Egyptian Kingdom, and then you're going to have the Antigonid Greece Kingdom, which will also be Asia Minor and Syria. Why they're called Hellenistic? Well, we often call the classical Greek culture, that of Socrates, let's say, Plato, these people, Aristotle, Hellenic. The Greeks didn't call themselves Greeks, they called themselves Hellenes. 
And so Hellenic civilization or culture would be associated with, with those particular types of people and the playwrights and the various elements of, of art and culture that belong to Greece and language. And this Hellenic culture is going to mix with the local cultures of Persia and of Syria and of Palestine and of Asia Minor and also of Egypt and produce what we call Hellenism. There's a comedian once who said, if Hellenic culture is cranberry juice, then what you end up with is like grape cranberry and peach cranberry and pineapple cranberry or apple cranberry, right? <laughs> and so Hellenism yeah. is best understood as this amalgam of pre-existing local cultures with Greek culture, civilization, and language. And that's going to be true from in Palestine as well, leading up to the time of Christ. So understanding then that in, in the time of Jesus, the lingua franca of, of the Roman Empire in the East, in this area, it's not going to be Latin, it's going to be Greek. And uh, this, this has to do with why the New Testament is written in a dialect of Greek called Koine Greek. It's going to help us understand how Greek made its way into the New Testament itself. Yeah. And, you know, one of the points here is that not only is it Greek, but it's been Greek for over 300 years, right? And so this isn't just some passing influence, right? This is entrenched and it's not just the language, right? The culture and the philosophy and the way of living have very much had a strong influence upon the region. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I have a comment too. So we didn't talk about how the Old Testament ends in the Hebrew Bible versus the Christian Bible, right? Or Christian Bibles. There are different Christian Bibles. Yeah, yeah. Our, our Christian Bible, as you know, there are Christian Bibles that include some of the books that are apocryphal, but we don't, which would be like Maccabees and Judas, Judith and those sorts of other books. Yeah. And some of those give us context for where we're going to, by the way, you know, Maccabees, for example. But, you know, it's interesting to note that the Hebrew Bible doesn't end with Malachi. It ends with Second Chronicles. And so the very last thing we get is let's go up to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. That's the ending. Yeah. Whereas our ending is Malachi, so that it can take us into Matthew and we can talk about John the Baptist. And I just had one other comment. Yeah. And that is that for Cleopatra, right? Sometimes when we think about Cleopatra, we think about pyramids. It's important to remember that Cleopatra is closer to us than she was to the pyramids. To the building of the pyramids. Right, to the building of the pyramids. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. By thousands of years. Yeah, when you're talking yeah. about like the Great Pyramids at Giza, I mean, the, the Great Pyramid is roughly 2650 BC, so 2650 years. It's absurdly old. <laughs> BC. And Cleopatra was interested in Mark Antony, and that puts him in the time of Octavius, who became Augustus Caesar when he took the title. And so that's going to be in the 40s and 30s BC. So between 2650 and 40 BC, you've, you've got over 2600 years separating Cleopatra from the first of the Great Pyramids. And if you go back to Saqqara and Djoser's Step Pyramid, add another 100 years or so to that mix. So it's a huge spread. I remember reading in Harold Bloom that if you could pick your God from this time, right? Because Caesar was considered God, you could pick Caesar, you could pick Jesus, Yeshua, right? You could pick Cleopatra. And so given those options, I think you said the right answer would be to pick 
Caesar, because then you could marry Cleopatra and crucify Yeshua. And then you'd, you'd be in charge of everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, just in passing to tie that together, as we look at the way in which religion functioned in the world just immediately prior to and throughout the New Testament, what we would call theology, that is the study of gods in this case, it's often divided into natural theology, civil theology, and mystical theology. Natural theology would include myths about the world itself, how it was created, how it was formed, myths about Demeter and Persephone and the seasons, so the cosmos, the seasons, the earth itself. So you would have a lot of deities that would be associated with natural theology that probably wouldn't be of interest eventually to Christians, but would be of interest to the people who live there. And civil theology would include the state. So that would include Vesta, the goddess of home and hearth in Rome, the principal Roman goddess and, and the Vestal Virgins that served her. You have a lot of civil theology, the state. So it's easy for these people to make a god of the emperor in a certain way because it makes sense in a civil theology. You know, Plato in his laws talks about how law in Crete, in one of his dialogues on law in, in Crete was given by Zeus. And if you go back to the Stella of Hammurabi, as we know many of those Stellas today, they have kind of a fingernail at the top, and it's it's Hammurabi receiving the law from the sun god, Shams. So the law is a divinely revealed thing, and so civil theology, very important to these people. Who, what are the gods and goddesses that determine what is justice and, and equity and so on? And then mythical theology be the one we're mostly familiar with, but all of these will play out in Jesus' own day. And so zealots are often associated with civil theology, that Messiah is going to come to establish a pure civic situation. And so it's natural for them to look at people like Jesus or others in a civic sense rather than in a, a mythical and ritual theology. Did you mean by zealots, you don't mean the party, but rather uppercase Z or lowercase Z is what I'm asking? Well, I think with uppercase Z, it works too, but we are not sure as to what extent it is a religious zeal, but there are in some of the studies of the zealot party, of course, very strong political overtones, the religion. And we see this in our Christianity today of, of, of various people who advance Christian theories. They're talking about end times and millennial kingdoms. And, and of course, uh, the politics of America especially are imbued with strong theological overtones. And so the idea of civic theology is anything but dead among us. And quite frankly, I'll often sit in a church class of some kind, and we're talking about Scripture, and all I'm hearing is civil theology. I'm not really hearing about God and believers and faith or anything else. I'm hearing about we got to do this or our society's going to fall to pieces or we're going to the dead horse prophecy constitution hang by a thread things. And so I guess what I'm saying is we cross these boundaries freely all the time. And people who lived at the time of the New Testament did them too, but they did them in a pantheistic fashion. The gods of nature and the goddesses of nature, the gods of politics, and in the case of Vesta, the principal Roman goddess of home and hearth and of the state. Any rate, I just thought as we're going along to mention that a lot of the information for who these gods and goddesses are is going to come out of this Hellenistic framework. 
There's a big reworking of the gods during the Hellenistic period. And many of the heroes and heroines of Jewish culture that would be familiar in the time of Christ come from this Hannah, the mother of the seven children that was persecuted by the Seleucid Persians, who would not eat pork and so had to watch her seven sons put to death in horrific ways in front of her eyes because they would not eat pork. That's part of the Hanukkah celebration. It's one of the elements. Or Judith, who cuts off the, the head of the king Holofernes, you know, rather than submit to his sexual advances. And Judas Maccabeus, who leads the Great Revolt in the second century BC. So we can see that religion and state are very closely tied together in this Hellenistic system that predates Christ. So... Just to kind of continue on with this, then the Hellenistic kingdoms in Palestine are going to come under serious challenge in the second century. First of all, led by priests. And the most important priest that's going to lead that is the figure of Judas Maccabeus. These are the books of Maccabees that are in the apocryphal literature of the Old Testament. And so in 167 to 160 BC, they're going to lead a series of revolts against their Seleucid rulers because the Seleucids will not let them practice their law, their religion as it should be. And that's a very important revolution there. So we're beginning to see then political Judaism reasserting itself at toward the end of this Hellenistic period, Persian Hellenism in Palestine. Now, it may change politically, but it's not going to change culturally for Hellenism. So we need to talk about that. We'll set that aside for now. But that's the important revolt of the 160s. Yeah. One of the points to make there to tie in was when we covered the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, this book is one of the easiest to date of the Old Testament. And it happened right there in you know the 160s BC because it goes through this history and gets to Antiochus, the Seleucid ruler that was the one persecuting and, and you know, killing the Jews and, you know, talks about him a lot, if not necessarily by name, but it's obviously him. <laughs> and it doesn't mention his death. And so it's interesting because you can see all the events it talks about, but then doesn't mention his death. And I believe he died in like 160 BC, something like that. And so this, the book of Daniel is actually dated right during this time. And, and it's set in an exilic time, you know, a Babylonian period, but the whole rhetoric of it is actually aimed at the political climate of the time. And it goes right along with the, the resistance that's happening, the civil disobedience to the, the rulers of the time within the Jewish culture and context. That's why we get, you know, they won't bow down to the idol. And so they're thrown in the furnace, right? They won't do these things. And, and so those are all stories that are meant to inform the Jewish identity of the time in resistance to civil disobedience to the Greek rulers. Correct. And that is, just to continue, Christopher, and we'll come to your point in just a second, this is also the time of the formulation of the Septuagint. The Septuagint is probably the first organization of the Old Testament as we understand it in Greek, right? And so texts are being selected for inclusion. You wonder why Daniel comes in there. Daniel's a very strange book. It doesn't mention Daniel for quite a while. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And, and the principal book of this genre for me is Esther. 
because Esther doesn't even mention God at all. You see, it's, it's all civil theology. It doesn't talk about the God we worship or bowing down to foreign idols. It's, it's simply Esther as the national heroine, but of a civil theology that they should be allowed to worship free of persecution and so on. And so for me, this Maccabean revolt and rejection of Persian Hellenistic rule it goes hand in hand with the formation of the Old Testament itself. And it's going to be quite a while before we get to the Tanakh and the Masoretic texts, the Hebrew versions of them. These are the Greek versions. And so the mythical theology, meaning the Old Testament text, and the civil theology go hand in glove in this second century period. Are we at the point, David, where you mentioned priests earlier, where we have Roman, we're not really quite to Roman rule, right? Where we have the priest actually who's running the temple actually selected by the Romans. There's a, a relationship there of, how should I say, collaboration, right? With an occupying force, you know? Yeah. How do we transition from Greek to Roman rule? Maybe maybe you want to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. That's. I think it's a great idea. The Maccabean Revolt ends around 160, and from that is going to emerge over the next 20 years what is called the Hasmonean Dynasty. And it's going to come from Simon Maccabee, who is probably arguably the last purely Maccabean ruler. The Hasmonean Dynasty is going to rule from 140 to 37 BC, and so that's going to take us, that's going to bridge us up toward the time when Rome is going to become directly involved in, in Palestine. And so we need to spend just a moment with this Hasmonean Dynasty. When you say bridge, you know, it made me think again. I talked about where we ended the Old Testament, both in the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. The, we mentioned also the Apocrypha, which aren't included in our Christian Bible. They actually serve as a bridge too, right? They're actually, they sit between the New and Old Testament and they give us some related information of what you're saying, right? Absolutely. And that's why I encourage people, whether or not we accept them as canonical works, to look at the apocryphal works as a way of understanding what's going on there. And of course, Rome is going to be, you know, a rather late political entity in the Eastern Mediterranean. There's one other point I was going to bring up from, you know, going back to what you were saying about some of these books that in the Hebrew Bible, like Daniel and Esther, that are part of the, what is called the Ketuvim, the writings. Daniel is not considered a prophet. We, we covered this when we covered Daniel, but for those, you know, coming to the podcast with the New Testament, this is not a prophet for the Jews. You know, this is not even a minor prophet. And so that book is going to be in the writings, and it does come from a later period, right, as Ben pointed out. And then it has sort of this apocalyptic flavor to it. Tell me, David, if this sounds like a good reading. Could we say that the Torah is saying something like, let's build the kingdom of God together with God, you know, and then maybe later on towards, you know, closer to Jesus's time, you could say like maybe people gave up on that idea and they, they're going to start pushing it into the future, right? This is going to happen at some later date. It becomes these, this apocalyptic flavor. And then we can say maybe John the Baptist is going to say, hey, it's going to happen soon. Like this is really, it's coming soon. And then Jesus comes and says, it's happening now. And actually, we don't need to wait for somebody to do it for us. We're going to do it with God ourselves, like the Torah says. 
In other words, you're headed toward a more personal religion. Is that what you're recommending rather than a national covenant? I'm trying to parse this out for just a second, because when you're talking about the personal commitment to building the kingdom of God, I don't find a lot of that in the Torah. We find some good examples of certain peoples who are doing the right thing, but whatever we would call the kingdom of God is based on a national covenant. We certainly are moving toward the nature of a personal covenant by the time we hit the New Testament. I think that there'd be a consensus that in the ancient period, people weren't individually responsible for the national covenant. The nation was responsible for that. And so, and it had a lot to do with ritual purity and rites of purification and sacrifice and holy days and observances as a people. There's not a whole lot of issues about faith in God. There's submission to God or there's obedience to God and you are my people but I think one of the great transitions in the New Testament is going to be this idea that it is an individualized thing. And I think that has a lot to do with Hellenism, because Hellenism is going to is going to dwell upon the individual, the Greek ideals of individuality and individual action, responsibility, and ethical behavior is going to have a, a big tie to that. Now, as to eschatology, the study of end times, that's a complex history, especially since the way we view it today is probably quite different than the way it may have been viewed in Jesus' day, say in Matthew 23, when he starts talking about the signs of times to come and, and things like that. Much more individualized then, you know, watch where you're standing, watch what you're doing, watch what you're observing. I think it's very important to note that the New Testament is going to introduce this individual responsibility, individual covenant, and faith, faith. I think a lot of the Old Testament doesn't talk about faith because it's unnecessary from the framework of a national covenant and also that it's irrelevant. You know, Jehovah exists and is the God of everything. And so you're either getting with the program or you're, you're going to pay the price of not getting with the program. Whereas in the New Testament, it's going to be this individualistic relationship, which will lead to mysticism and individual connection, spirituality. We don't really get a lot of spirituality in the Old Testament. It's ritual observance and purity. But it's not like, you know, how someone prays and, and receives illumination and these types of things. So I think it's very important to note that. Yeah, and that even shows up in, in, in Jewish, you know, rabbinical Judaism, too, that you get a mystical tradition there, too. So that's, again, as you've mentioned, Hellenistic influence makes a big difference there. And, and that, of course, has everything to do with the individualism, right? And that's true, of course, but I meant to suggest that uh, if we look at the Torah, we are participating in, in doing this now. In fact, God is already always doing these things, as Ben and I said when we went through the, the Old Testament. We're participating in that way. Maybe we're not thinking of ourselves as individuals. That's a really good point. But we're participating in that way. Whereas then later on, closer to Jesus's time, it seems like it's not really happening now. It's going to happen in the future, right? At some undetermined, unspecified future date. And when Jesus comes, he says, no, it's happening now. Yes. I think it was Gunter Bornkum, if I remember right. Maybe it wasn't. But he wrote a book. I have to double check that. Jesus of Nazareth. I read it as a young man, English translation of it. And it was all about that very, very point. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is upon you, 
it's talking about an immediacy and an imminence that it's right here, right now. It's not some distant place, some distant event. And that is, of course, highly susceptible to individual spirituality and individual mystical interpretation that, you know, you want to know where God is right here. And then when Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you, which many Protestant thinkers have tried to distance themselves from because it's an exceptionally mystical statement of it. You want to know where God is. God's in you, in your soul. You want to know where to find God? Well, you're already there. Wherever you go, God is within you, inside you. And so it's not only individual, but it's like immediate and present. That suggests to some people that you don't need a church. That's how dangerous that idea could be because they go, what do you need a priest? You don't need an intermediary. Right? You don't need anybody to stand between you and the divine. You're already there. You just don't know it. You don't know how to connect it. You don't know how to understand it. You don't know how to enact it. And so Jesus poses a very radical departure in that sense from the Old Testament. And that's why in Matthew 5, he'll say, you've heard it said by them of old, don't kill, but I say unto you, don't get angry or don't commit adultery. And I say, don't lust. What he's saying is the problem is inside you. It's your anger is the problem. It's not don't kill, it's don't be angry. Then, of course, you won't kill and do a whole bunch of other things. So he is bringing this highly individualized statement, and he calls it fulfilling the law. So he's acknowledging the law has always been there in an ethical and behavioral sense. But he's now saying, not only are you individually responsible, it's not national purity, it's inner purity and that we each need to work from within us. And so this had to be, at the time of Jesus, an exceptionally radical interpretation of the Old Testament to people like Pharisees or Sadducees, who still had that ritual purity concept ingrained in them. This is a very, very striking departure. And we'll have to talk about who they are too, but maybe this is a good segue into Roman rule and to where we get to where we have these priests that I was talking about. Okay, yeah. Part of the development of this theology that's going on here and these ideas is very much tied to the temple. So in the history of Judaism, when you had the temple, you had the presence of God. And when the destruction of the first temple happens and you have the exile, then there's this sense that they've lost that presence of God. And so that's when you get a lot of these these prophets that are talking about end times and eschatological stuff, right? And then when they return and they come back, then they get the temple again and God is there with them again, but it's just not quite the same, right? And so you have this development of this idea and this theology that then pushes forward into this time and and you have the introduction of the Hellenization and everything. And then with the destruction of the second temple, you have a serious crisis of theology, especially within Judaism. And the approach that that Jesus brings to this, you know, pre-destruction of the temple is a way that kind of gives the Christians a way out of this, it seems, that they don't have to be tied to this idea of the the theology and, and ritual that happens with the temple. And, you know, we'll get to this when we discuss Jesus and, and his teachings in the temple and the cleansing of the temple and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Again, I think that this idea and the development of it that you guys are seeing is very much tied to the actual existence of the institution of the temple and the priestly class and everything that's involved with that. David, you've talked about civil and mystical theology, right? Yeah, natural, civil, and mystical. Natural, civil, and mystical theology. 
I'm wondering if it's maybe just natural theology, but I remember reading in Bloom again that there's no theology for, you know, Yahweh, right? It's just, he's a man. Yeah, theologically thin. Right? This is God with a body, like like in Latter-day Saint tradition. So that's another influence of Hellenism that we get, right? Is this idea of theology, you know, we get from Plato and, the you know, the Greek philosophers and Philo of Alexandria takes that and runs with it. And then you get further Neoplatonizing with Augustine, what, 300, 400-ish CE, right? Yeah, late, late 435th century. So let me just make a point before we go on here. I think that you've brought up the temple. It's very important to note a couple of things. First of all, Yes, the temple was the divine presence in a general sense. In a specific sense, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest went there one time a year to atone for the sins of the people. And so you're right, it is the presence of God, but it's it's a national presence, right? And so only the high priest is the one who really goes into the presence. And so it's going to be quite different from individual worship in the Greek-style temples or even in the Hellenistic temples of Egypt. Persians are going to build a lot of temples, Edfu, Komombo, by Egyptians and others. A lot of these, if you ever take the Nile cruise, like from Aswan, you're going to go to Philae Temple in Aswan and Komombu, Edfu. These are all Hellenistic structures. They're not ancient Egyptian temples until you hit Karnak and Thebes. We realize that they're Hellenized structures that have an individual flavor to them, as well as a political fa- flavor to uphold the Pharaoh, but not the Jewish temple. I tend to view Matthew 23 at the end to be a point where Jesus makes the exact point you're saying. So Jesus has already had his triumphal entry, and he's in the temple in Matthew 23, so it's not the people that have to acknowledge him. He's speaking to the Pharisees. Remember, he's being saying, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, eight curses, eight woes pronounced on them in the temple. And at the end of that, he says, how I would have gathered you as chicks. It's one of the times he says, he says on several occasions, according to the New Testament, but says, and and you would not. And then he says, behold, your house, meaning your nation and particularly the temple, your house is left unto you desolate. It's abandoned. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. In other words, for me, it's saying the national covenant is over. It's breached. It's abrogated because I am the covenant now. This is the new and everlasting covenant. I am the God of this temple and I'm out of here. And when you guys decide, and this plays into DNC 45 too, when you decide as a nation and as a people, it plays into 2 Nephi 10, it plays into 2 Nephi 25. When you get this as a nation, then we're going to come back together in a covenant relationship. And so this impacts a lot of LDS thought to me on the restoration of Israel to the lands of their inheritance. A lot of things that I think we have not really thought of in terms of the New Testament statements and New Testament covenants that I think are really governing. So I'm hoping when you go into your particulars that you take a moment to talk about how we really have kind of a Protestant interpretation of end times and of restorations of the church, restorations to lands of inheritance. And I, I don't think we've done a very good job of building a, an LDS interpretation from our scripture and from the New Testament. Yeah, I think there's room there. Yeah, there's room there to develop. 
Yeah, I think I see us pushing things into the future again, right? To the end times, and rather than building the kingdom now. Correct. I was going to go back to Romans and, and such and fill out the Herodians, if that's okay. I thought maybe, I, I felt like I got a little far afield of that one, but I think that you're, <laughs> you're bringing up of, of eschatological themes in Daniel and in other places is very important because we see ourselves as participants in a sacred history, in a sacred historical drama. And if sacred history has some theological, spiritual validity, it seems to me we ought to get it straight. So that's where I'm really coming from. Okay, let's go back to the Hasmonean dynasty. That dynasty is from 140 to 37 BC. And these are the inheritors of the Maccabeans. And they have to play a dancing game between the Seleucid Persians and the rising state of Rome. Rome is getting bigger and bigger. It's, it's now conquered the Greek kingdoms, the remnants, the Antigonids, etc. And it's moving toward Palestine into the eastern Mediterranean. John Hyrcanus in, in the 130s BC, the Hasmonean ruler, conquers Edom, or Edomea, as it's called, which is to the south of Jerusalem area, toward the Negev Desert. But the Edomites, or the Edomeans, were thought to be the descendants of Esau. And so they're kind of related peoples to the Jews and Israelites, but they weren't Israelites or Jews. When they're conquered, Hyrcanus and others in the Hasmonean dynasty force Judaism on them. They force them to convert to Jewish ritual. In other words, sort of bringing them into the national covenant of the Israelites, even though they're not Israelite, but bringing them in by adoption because they're cousins, right? They're close cousins. They're the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And so when he does this, this is going to lead eventually to the Herodians because Herod, who takes over somewhere in the 30s BC, as early as 37 BC, probably 34, and rules to either 4 BC or 1 BC, according to different interpretations right up to the point of Christ. Herod the Great is an Edomian. He's an Edomite. And so out of the Hasmonean dynasty, the Edomian dynasty has risen. And we have to ask why. And the reason is because Herod has seen the rising power of Rome coming into Palestine, and he becomes a client king. He's on the Roman side. That's why when the Romans say conduct a census, you know, the whole Luke 2 nativity story, in the days of Augustus, there was a decree that all the world should be taxed. Well, why is Augustus doing this when it's Herod that's in charge of it and Herod, the great figure? It's because Herod's a client king. He's allied himself with the Romans. The Seleucids are out in Palestine. Collaborator. Yeah, he's exactly correct. And he's going to do several things that are important. Herod's going to rebuild the temple. That's why it's called the Temple of Herod. He's going to build the great city of Caesarea Maritima, which is where the Romans usually rule, and not Jerusalem, but in Caesarea Maritima. He's going to build Masada, his palace in Masada, that's eventually going to play such a mythic role in the, in the rebellions of First Roman Jewish War. But he's a Roman client, and Rome rules through Herod, right? And so they have their governor there who's their, you know, representative and, and exercises cer certain military and taxing. It's mostly military governance and taxation. Romans weren't really interested in getting into people's affairs. They were interested mostly in taxation and control. So they're there. And then when, when he dies, we get three more Herodian rulers that come into the New Testament we should know about. So Herod the Great leading up basically to the time of the birth of Christ. When he dies, he, he divides his kingdom into four parts, and it's called the Tetrarchy. 
tetrarch, ark from the Greek meaning king, ruler, and tetra, four of them. The first one we should know about is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is going to appear in Galilee. And so we're going to know him around the time of John the Baptist. He's the one that John's going to be aiming a lot of his ire at. Yeah, you're married to your brother's former wife and so on. And then the next one is Herod Agrippa, who is going to appear in Acts 12. And he ruled 41 to 44 AD, or CE as it's sometimes known. And then Agrippa II is going to be the Agrippa of Paul in the Acts. And he's going to rule up into where the Romans just do away with the whole system and take direct control. And that's going to happen in the first Jewish revolt and the first Roman-Jewish war from 66 to 70, some argue to 72 AD, in which the temple is destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. This is the period of Josephus. And so the Herodians are the rulers of Palestine under the Romans during the, the core time of the New Testament up to the First Roman War. Not so much Paul, some of Paul, but not all of Paul. And that's where we get to the Jewish revolt. This is around the time that Mark is writing his gospel, right? The earliest gospel is written around that time. Yes. And then we also have the historian Josephus, right? Who Who's one of our extra canonical sources for Jesus and the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. Although Josephus was involved in the Jewish revolt, and by the time he's writing his history, he's trying to make nice with the Romans again. Well, he'd been a Roman commander, you know, Jewish, but he was he was a Roman commander. I, don't, I think he's called a general. I don't know exactly what that means, but yeah, I very closely tied in with the Romans. But these are the few sources we have. You know, I think they archaeologically have uncovered a rock with the name Pilate on it, and it's the one source we have of Pilate being in Palestine, period. So much of this, I'll mention something now, although it's not completely tied to what we're talking about, but well, it is in a way. So 60, well, 70 AD, the temple is destroyed in the Jewish Roman revolt. And the Romans are going to take over, basically, and now rule far more directly. But in 132 AD, we have the Bar Kokhba revolt. A priest named Bar Kokhba is going to rise up and say, I am Messiah. And it's going to be a messianic movement, and it's going to rebel against the Romans. There's going to be another series of conflicts over a period of about four years. And that is when the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. And the city is brought down to the ground, parts of the gates of the city on the walls, and the western wall of the Temple Mount, and a couple of little other small places, all that remains of Jerusalem. The city is torn apart, the land is salted, and the Jews are kicked out at that point. We need to realize that much of the writings of the New Testament are also going to be in between these revolts, and the question of civil theology is going to be prominent, where Paul's going to say, you know, you be obey your magistrates, right? you got to say that, because if you don't, the Romans are going to say, oh, the Christians have joined these troublemakers. And so you're going to see kind of a, a civil theology poking its way into many of the writings in the New Testament, because the Jerusalem we know today is rebuilt. And sometimes when I've taken tours to Israel or Jordan and people say, I want to walk where Jesus walked, I, I, if they really ask me, can you point where, is this a place where Jesus walked? And I said, well, since you've asked, no, because this didn't exist in Jesus' day. You're hard-pressed to find anything in Jerusalem. Maybe in Galilee you can walk where Jesus walked. This is a very tragic time for the Jewish people. 
But the Christians have to thread this needle of persecutions and, and so forth. And so this is all tied up in the New Testament. Right. I remember seeing in Jerusalem, walking through the streets of the ancient city, tops of doors that were down by my ankles. Yeah, yeah. It's like all ancient cities. They get torn up and rebuilt and piled on top of each other. So now to Rome, and we can maybe finish up with Rome and a couple things. Rome, about 63 BC, they make their formal move into the region. The Seleucid Persians are sufficiently weak, and the Romans are, are making their moves there and beginning to claim what we think of as, the, as the sort of the Western Middle East. The Roman emperors that you're going to deal with in one way or another in the New Testament are, of course, going to be Augustus. But Augustus is only going to rule until about 12 AD. But from 27 BCE, he's the first full-on Roman emperor. I mean, Caesar, of course was crowned, but that state never is fully realized. Augustus realizes that. In 27, he's made emperor and so on. And then you get Tiberius from 12 to 37, Caligula briefly, 37 to 41 AD, Claudius, an important figure from 41 to 54, and finally Nero, who is the emperor leading up to that great Jewish war. And Nero from 54 to 68 he leads into that Jewish war, and it's under Nero that Peter and Paul are killed in Rome, right? Peter's crucified upside down, and Paul is beheaded. And so we kind of come to a close of an apostolic period under Nero, who is a very important imperial actor in Christian history. When you mentioned Nero, it reminded me of Seneca, who was you know, Nero's tutor, the Stoic philosopher. He was born around the same time as Jesus, which would have been not year one or zero, right? But somewhere between six and four BC. <laughs> yeah, there's no year without time. But not even one, right? Somewhere between six and four BCE when we adjust the calendar. We've had changes to our calendar. And so scholars have done the work. Even I think I read this from an LDS scholar. Somewhere between six and four BC. So around the same time as Seneca for those following Stoicism. Stoicism's back again. We oscillate between Epicureanism and Stoicism depending on how things are going. Yeah, that's very true. And, and that's, again, this Hellenistic influence. To tie these things together, we need to mention the Decapolis cities. The Decapolis cities were originally called the Decapolis, the Ten Cities, although the number 10 isn't necessarily fixed, were the cities sort of to the north and east of Jerusalem that were Hellenistic cities. If you go to them, they're going to look like Hellenistic cities. They're going to have a, a plaza called the Cardo, which means the heart. They're going to have a main street that leads down from that. And they're going to have a main crossroads where the market is called the Capitolium. You're going to see all of this. And, and some of them were very close to New Testament sites. For example, Sephora is maybe four or five miles away from Nazareth. Sephora was a Greek city, a Hellenistic city, very close to where Jesus grew up. And there are people who believe that there are New Testament influences on how Jesus spoke in, in certain places in Galilee. You have Beit Shan in that area near the Sea of Galilee. And of course, just on the other side in modern Jordan, you have Jerash and Philadelphia, which is north of modern Amman. Jerash is maybe the best preserved of the Decapolis, right? I've been there and, you mm -hmm. know, I don't, did you go there, Ben? Ben and I studied yeah. in Amman, yeah. ancient oh, Philadelphia. Amazing right? ruins, yeah. Yep. I agree with you completely that, you know, the ideal, you know, you've got the Cardo Street, you've got the Capitolium, the Nymphaeum Fountains, 
It's like a classical Hellenistic city with lots of public areas where debate could occur, where sermons could be delivered and civic religion. You know, I mean, we see Paul when he preaches on Mars Hill is in an area where there can be an audience gathered already. And a lot of these cities were places where Christianity could take hold outside of traditional Jewish frameworks in a different framework. Yeah. There's one other place, a biblical place in, you know, modern Jordan. But first, Amman, is that one of the those 10 cities? No, Philadelphia wasn't. Amman grew around Philadelphia. It's Ptolemaic, right? Yes. Philadelphia is basically north Amman. You know, it's right there. Right. So I, I remember the Greco-Roman ruins in downtown Amman, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then there's Um Qais, which is the ancient Gadara. Yes. Which is part of a New Testament story, too. Figures into Luke prominently. That's where the swine fill, you know, with the spirits of the devils go over the cliff. And one of my favorite stories in Gadara is the boy who's possessed of devils. He's mad, who lives among the tombs. It's a very powerful mm. story there. And Jesus. If you look at that story, just to show again how these Hellenistic cities were known by Jesus, and he interacted with them, it seems, because he casts the devil out of the man or the boy who lived among the tombs, and this fellow wants to follow him, and he says, no. I think it's Luke 8, might be 10. He says, he wants to follow him. He says, no, you go back and tell your people what I have done for you. And he does, and there's indications that they become followers of Jesus. So he sends him back to a Hellenistic city, essentially. Maybe the way in which he was introducing his teachings to this Hellenistic crowd. The interaction between Jesus and these Hellenistic influences, especially in the book of Luke, I think, that's the one where I see it the most, is very important. So I only have one more thing I wanted to talk about as context. As a broad area of context, and that's going to be the mystery cults. And by mystery, we have to understand, it's from the Greek mystes, which means to close the mouth or to close the lips. It means that they were, some would say secret, some would say sacred. And these were cults that are Hellenistic primarily, although they are derived from pre-existing, pre-Hellenistic influences. And so we know many of these, the cult of Orpheus, or, or the Eleusinian Mysteries, or the cult of Isis, the cult of Mithras. And these cults, I think, have a, have a great importance in understanding how the story about this obscure Jewish man named Jesus had any significance whatsoever to the general populace of the Roman Empire. You have to ask yourself why Christianity would spread so well to the Greek-speaking peoples of the Eastern Roman Empire and then later to the Western Roman Empire in North Africa as well. A lot of this might be understood by the mystery cults. So the Hellenistic world was the world's first, Western world's at least, first truly urban civilization. It wasn't to say they didn't have cities before, but the mass of people never really had much to do with cities except in, in, in some tangential way that the, the great amount of the populace didn't live in cities. And so there's a huge socioeconomic transition when Rome and, and the Hellenistic cities begin to make their appearance. 
And these places become crowded. They have severe problems of sanitation and, and you work as a day laborer. You don't know if you're going to have a job to one day to the next day. And life is very, when, when, when you, when you lived on a farm, I mean, you're subject to the fluctuations of weather and these sorts of things. And so you have your natural theology to help you connect with the gods that control, you know, rain and land and fertility, et cetera. But, but when you get into these cities, you're cut off from all of that. And there's a, there's a high degree of powerlessness. And so one of the things you want to do is start networking and connecting and finding what they would call fraternal organizations that would bring you together in some level of security, et cetera. And, and these had civil theological and mystical theological components to them that were very strong. So powerful were they in influencing the spread of Christianity that the famous Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, who was born in the year 100, died in 165, he said that the mystery cults, the mystery cults were, his words, demonic imitations of the true faith. Elements of the mystery cults so well coincided with basic teachings and rituals of Christianity at the time that he be referred to them as demonic imitations of the Christian faith. There's a couple of them that we, sh- we need to talk about in particular that would have lent themselves to Christianity. One is the cult of Isis and the other is the cult of Orpheus. David, I think this is already implied, but this is anachronistic to say, right? To say that, that those mystery cults, don't they predate Christianity? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Justin Martyr is anachronistic. And it may be, I don't know if we have enough time to really get into the ways in which Christians intentionally withheld their teachings from non-Christians, from unbaptized Christians, in order to prevent them from claiming that Christianity was just another mystery cult. And that's around the time of, of Justin Martyr. There used to be the saying, you may have heard it, where at a certain point in, in, in Christian ritual, one of the officials would say, the doors, the doors. And what that meant was close the doors so that the unbaptized cannot hear what's about to be said. Justin Martyr is responding to perhaps claims that Christianity was just another mystery cult. I don't think he's being purely anachronistic. It is anachronistic, but he is, he is responsive, I think, too, to what's going on there. Just really quickly, without going into the cult of Isis too deeply or any of these cults too deeply, Isis, of course, was the sister and wife of the god Osiris one of the great gods of the Egyptian pantheon, long before Egypt came under Hellenistic rule. Osiris is the god who is killed in a sort of pre-mortal life council of the gods, right? He's tricked by the god Set to get into a coffin, and then he's hammered down, and then Set dismembers him, dismembers him, and he throws him out all over the Egyptian delta, essentially. And his sister Isis is pregnant with their son Horus, Isis has to go find all the parts and wrap them up together. It's the first mummy. Create this mummy, bring them all together, and then she sings a revivifying song, and Osiris is resurrected. Osiris comes back to life. And his son Horus, the various pharaohs embody Horus, and they're all about eternal life and resurrection for them and their people. And so the story of Isis and Osiris and Horus The Delta myth cycle, they call it, is very important to this notion of afterlife, pre-life, afterlife, and eternal life resurrection. 
In fact, if you see the Isis and Horus, her son, statues, she's often seated in a throne with a crown on, and Horus is in her lap. And if you look at early Christian iconography, you're looking at Isis and Horus artistically. And so, as you, you can see that there's a natural affinity to the cult of Isis, but what does it involve? Life, death, restoration to life, salvation, eternal life, all tied up in the all core Christian messages that could be spoken of by missionaries, apostles, Paul, and others. And so when you read about Paul, often what you'll find is early on in his epistles, he'll say, I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead. I mean, Paul, in many of his epistles, hits the resurrection right off the bat. Because he knows that that's, that's a, that he's, he's saying, yeah, there are these gods or goddesses that may have done this. I'm talking about the man who is God who really did it. This is the real deal. This isn't a myth. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And, you know, I wonder, David, how would you say to this? I don't know that, that these ideas that are in the mysteries and are in Christianity are in Judaism before Jesus, before this time. Oh, I would agree with that. Yeah. Although some of them are. Okay. So that, I think that's interesting. But, but the Sadducees, you know, if we were to talk really quickly about Jewish sex, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, but they don't believe in eternal life either. And they're in charge of the temple and the high priest is taken from the Sadducees. Annas and Caiaphas were, were Sadducees. But chosen by the Romans, right? As high priests, they were kind of approved by the Romans, but it meant choosing them. And so, yeah, that's because Sadducees could enforce the law. Many laws except for death, right? And that's why they had to go to Pilate with Jesus, because they wanted to put him to death. And so, as you as you look at this, you will see there were Jewish sects that, that flat out denied those things, denied a resurrection, denied eternal life. And it's unclear exactly how much even the Pharisees really believed in it. The Essenes would have been much more in line with that. We see there's various Jewish groups that would or would not accept kind of the core teachings of Christianity. Just kind of finishing with the mystical cults, there were rituals of initiation. Baptism is sacred bathing. Ritual bathing, sacred bathing was big in both Orpheus and in Isis. And in some of them, you were anointed with oil. So you, you, you went through a ritual bath, you were anointed with oil, and you were robed, or there would be robes vicariously, so to speak, on one of the priests. And you would go through these sacred dramas where you would journey to the threshold of death. And at the threshold of death, you would interact with the divinity that would allow you to enter into salvation and allow you to enter into eternal life. And so there's a lot about these mystery cults that commends itself to the success of Christianity in the ancient Roman world. It would appear there's an audience People who are dispossessed, people who are having it rough, who for whom eternal life has meaning, who can make individual covenants of initiation, and so on, that were not spoken of to the populace directly, but were held secret, or as some would say sacred, and so on. And so I'm kind of done then with, with at least the introduction to mystery cults there. So I think the question that would come up here then, David, is how, how does what you were just talking about and understanding of these, these cults within this historical context, how will that help a person understand what's happening in the New Testament? Okay. No, these are very good things. So when in first Corinthians, now Corinth, of course, is, is a major Greek community of the time in Greece, right? City of Corinth. Right there, the north part of the 
Peloponnesus Peninsula. When he speaks to them, or when he's in Athens and speaking on Mars Hill, a lot of times he's tapping into these similar themes, especially in Corinth. So it's no surprise that Corinth and 1 Corinthians 15 has a major resurrection theme to it, right? As in Adam all die, and so in Christ shall be all, all be made alive. One of the ways of maybe understanding this as they read is they could read an epistle of Paul and say, where was this epistle given? And what was this epistle about? And, you know, who's the audience for this? And then begin to read it with a set of eyes that helps you understand how the Christian message could resonate with the people of the Roman Empire and and why certain things are emphasized to them. That's what I, I would recommend. And when you read in Acts where Paul goes out and meets with community, sometimes he meets with the Jewish people of that community first and secures them. But but at other times, like in Athens, he's not working with the Jewish community. He's going to be working, or Jewish community, working with a Greek-speaking so-called pagan community at that time. And so knowing your audience, I think, is vital to understanding what's going on in the in the text of the New Testament. You're saying it's not just that the the people were able to relate to these aspects of Christianity because they kind of already had that within their culture, but it's that those who spread Christianity, particularly Paul or others, emphasized those on purpose because they knew that they would sort of find fertile ground, so to speak. Absolutely. So just, I have one question, David, and that is, you mentioned the Essenes, right? I think, you know, most people have heard of Sadducees and Pharisees. That They're, they're a little more obvious, but who are these Essenes? Okay, so the varieties of what we would may call Judaism. You know, I sort of wonder if there was a Judaism in the New Testament time. Or a Christianity? Well, definitely. I like Bart Ehrman's use of Christianities, and we're not sure where all of them came from, but they seem to have an affinity with some of these pre-existing sects within Judaism. And the Sines, we know them mostly because they're located in and around the area of Qumran, and this is the area of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there's a number of writings that were in there that seem to have Christian affinities. They were discovered in the caves of Qumran, I believe, around 1948. The story is a shepherd threw a rock into the little caves that are there in that area by the Dead Sea and that he heard a jar break and so went and investigated him. A famous comedian once said, a poor shepherd boy went and found these clay jars, which in his ignorance he sold to museums for $750,000 apiece. These writings in Qumran have validated some of the writings we take in Isaiah, and so they have Old Testament connections, but they also speak of the children of light and other concepts that lend themselves well to kind of an affinity for Christianity. The Essenes, water rituals were very important to them, and sacred washings. Some scholars and other people go so far as to say baptisms happened there. And so the whole community seems to have been sort of, I don't want to say insisted, but that's a term that's sometimes used. They lived apart and among themselves, kind of a, a model for a family-oriented monastic life, if you will. And they participated in rituals of purity surrounding water that may have helped us understand baptism. Because baptism in the Old Testament is is really basically non-existent. 
It doesn't say that water wasn't important, and it does talk about classifications of water from living waters and so on. I think somebody's dissertation, we talked about six or seven classifications of water in the Old Testament of their sacred nature. So it isn't that water isn't important, but but the Essenes seem to, in a, in a very real way, sort of presage Christians. Can I ask you a question, David? I've heard people talk about mikveh as baptism. I I don't see I don't see mikveh as baptism. What would you say? I don't either. Mikveh, the ritual bath in preparation for the Sabbath, but it wasn't sacramental or, or, you know, I don't think that the ritual, there's a ritualistic, or at least especially not a covenantal association with it. So we can say this baptism thing is new, right? This is not part it of seems Judaism. To be. Whatever it is it, it John is doing doesn't look like anything we've seen before. Okay. There are arguments that it is appearing before, but they're not real strong textual arguments to the Old Testament or to broad Jewish practice. So so we've got the Sadducees who rose from the remnants of, of the priest the priestly caste in ancient Israel, the Kahanes or the Levites, broadly speaking, and descendants of Aaron and these sorts of things. Whether or not that's what was actually going on is highly debatable. However, the Sadducees are in charge of essentially the temple. So when the money changers get kicked out and all that, that Jesus is confronting the Sadducees very squarely in that event. The Pharisees are the rabbinical synagogue Talmud, the rabbinical law-oriented sect. We see them in the New Testament. For example, if you go to John 9, the man who's born blind that Jesus heals, he has to go before the Pharisees and they say, well, who did this to you? And he doesn't want to talk about it. Maybe his parents, you know, was it, is it true that your son was really born blind? It is, it's the way in which you attack Jesus. You just say, oh, everybody says this guy was born blind, but he really wasn't. It's almost like politicians today. They'll say that kind of stuff. Like, you know, oh, that wasn't really the case. But, but at any rate, the parents appear there and he goes of age. Why don't you ask him? And, and the, and the Pharisees in that point threatened to kick him out of the synagogue if they won't disclose Jesus and the kid wasn't really blind. They're kind of, they want him to discredit the miracle. And if you don't, we're going to excommunicate you. You also find in John 11 and 12, the Lazarus story, there's strong hints that the, the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees in particular, wanted to go find Lazarus and kill him. So they say, oh, you brought Lazarus back to life. Well, where is he? Huh? And so there's this very direct sort of confrontation with the core message of Jesus' miracles and the desire to discredit them on the part of the Pharisees. And, and so the Pharisees control the synagogues, the rabbinical system, which, is, which essentially comes out of the Babylonian captivity. Without the temple in Babylon, you still want to maintain your identity and your religion but you don't have a temple for priests to use anymore to do sacrifices and the, and the ritual holidays that go along with temple worship. So they come up with this system of wise men, teachers, rabbis, and that persists. And just last note on that, in a very real way, and I don't mean this disparagingly, although some might think that's what this means, but in a very real way, Pharisaical Judaism is, is the Judaism of today. It's the one that survives the Jewish-Roman wars and the catastrophes of the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's why the synagogue, the rabbi, the Talmud, all of this is the tradition, what we would call Judaism today. But in Christ's time, it wasn't. It was many, many flavors of Judaism. Yeah, it's the theological predecessor of, of maybe modern Orthodox Judaism, you might say. Yeah, yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. One of my understandings, David, is that 
there's actually varying schools of thought within the Pharisees as well. And so you get some who may have had more of an affinity for Jesus and his teachings. You know, we, we get hints of like Nicodemus, we get Joseph of Arimathea, who are both Pharisees, but they have some sort of an affinity for Jesus, even though they aren't necessarily always ready to come out openly and say it. And so there is something to the the Pharisee, the Pharisaical tradition that isn't all anathema to, to what Jesus' Correct. teachings are. I'm glad you bring it up because I'm speaking very broadly and we do need to make these exceptions. Yeah. And and very importantly in the idea of that exception would be that Jesus was recognized by them as a master and they asked him some, some very poignant questions. One of them, of course, about baptism with Nicodemus. So I think we have to be very careful in broadly condemning the Pharisees. I I think that the telling New Testament scripture for me, this is now in John 12, where they're going to plan the trial of Jesus. And I believe it's Caiaphas, and I'm, this is paraphrasis, so you want to go back. But he, but he said, he basically said, what are we going to do with this man? Speaking of Jesus, what are we going to do about him? For he taketh away our nation and our place. And so the way I differentiate them is that the Nicodemuses and the Joseph of Arimathea and many others who may not make it into the text, that the Pharisaism was a source of spiritual orientation for them. But for the ones that we see Jesus interacting with who are trying to discredit him, there's his power. They want to control the Jewish nation. He taketh away our place, meaning the representative of the Romans. They're worried that he's going to become the king of the Jews, literally. He taketh away our place and our nation. And this happens to all of us as people. We have to decide if our religion is a source of power to remake the world in our own eyes and to empower ourselves. And I would argue there are many Christians today for whom their Christianity is power. I'm sorry to say this, but I, I think sometimes in the church we find people for whom it's more about the politics and it's more about making other people behave the way they want them to behave. It's a power relationship than it is a spiritual relationship. So I think that that was no different in Jesus' time. We The ones who it's a true faith for them, a true commitment, and the other ones for whom it's a venue to power and influence. Within a historical context, talking about the historical occurrence of Messiah's at the time was a regular thing, right? There's oh, yeah. like oh, these yeah. guys, that, you know, every few years or maybe even more than that, there's messiahs oh, yeah. all over the place all the time. And so we could talk about that a little bit and how that fits with zealotry. Would you speak to that, David, before we move on to, you know, to the text, one more context point? So let's just do zealots or the Hebrew term or kanaim, the zealots. And it meant those who were zealous on behalf of God, but it's often understood to be a political movement, sometimes called a political party, if you will, not a party in a modern sense, but a political movement that was looking at the concept of Messiah and religion in a nationalistic sense, right? That it would unify the Jewish people against the Romans and that Messiah would be one to deliver the, the, the Jewish people from subjugation to the Romans and to foreign rule. And there's some of them mentioned, Matthew 10 and I think the third chapter of Mark both mention Simon the Zealot. 
There are interpretations within some Christian communities that Judas was a zealot and that his attempt to get Christ arrested was to bring Christ in direct conflict with the Sanhedrin and direct conflict with the Romans so that Christ's hand would be forced, that he would have to act politically in order to save himself from the catastrophe. And so there are those interpretations that the zealots are participants in the scriptures. And so Josephus talked about the four Judaisms or four sects of Judaism, we've covered we've covered many, but the zealots are one of them. We're going to read about them in the text. I would suggest to readers of the New Testament, if they familiarize themselves with this, it can help them understand the text. And let me give you an example of what I think is a classical misread of the text, because we don't follow these things in our reading. We don't often really pay attention to who Jesus is talking to when he says things. And so if you go to John 5... Right? Is it John 5, 29? Search the scriptures for in them you think ye find eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And we'll all say that's a, that's an instruction to the believers, but that's not his audience. His audience, I, if I remember correctly, are Pharisees. And so search the scriptures because you think you got eternal life is where he's saying, you better go back and look at them again because they, they're about me. You think they're about you. They're not about you. They're about me. It's a condemnation of a bad reading of the scriptures. I'm paraphrasing again, but in the next verse, he says, but you will not come to me that I might heal you. And so our our tendency when we read to pick this verse out, you know, scripture mastery verses, there's no problem. There's nothing wrong with that for ninth grade seminary students. But my goodness, as someone who claims to be an adult and mature disciple of Jesus Christ, our read deserves to be a lot deeper than that. It seems like somehow there's a maturity that's difficult to move beyond. Sometimes in our manuals, we, we do this again and again. So we'll read Amos, and it's all about, I reveal my secrets to the prophets. And as they say, Casablanca, the usual suspects, right? And you bring them up, but in Amos, there's this condemnation of people. He says, you'll sell the poor for a pair of shoes. And there's this social justice that is the most striking social justice I've read in all of the Old Testament, and it doesn't even come up. And I'm going... We're not reading, and so we need to know who he's talking to and what they represent. Otherwise, we generalize it, and it becomes anything we want. So we're not really following the instructions of a master, we claim. We're making a God in our own likeness and image. We're making a Jesus that comports with our politics, our culture. And so there's a real danger. So in this introduction of context in the New Testament, not that you have to believe what I say, but we need to really understand this to understand the New Testament as a text and to understand what its power might be in our own life, and our own spirituality. As a philosophy professor, I've said many times in the front of the room, everything that is said is said in a context. Context gives meaning. So when you drop the context, this is one of the most serious mistakes you can make in thinking. Absolutely. Your thinking is going to go wrong. Your understanding is going to go wrong if you're dropping the context. You've got to have the context. Now, David, I think I heard you say that Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, why not? It's dangerous because we make our own religion up when we read Scripture incorrectly, and we can interpret a Scripture in such a bad way that says I get to kill my neighbor. I've heard people, you know, they say these things, and I'm going, 
That negates everything else Jesus said. If you interpret that one little thing that way, then you deny everything else he said. And they go, well, that doesn't mean that that one little thing isn't valid. And I go, yeah, but that's your one little thing. I don't think that's the text's one little thing. So anyway. So I think I found the perfect segue from context into text. I'm not so sure that Jesus was as anti-pharisaical as John. And I know Paul wasn't. So our earliest New Testament author is Paul, who himself was a Pharisee and who has a lot of respect for his teacher, who is obviously a Pharisee, right? And then we have Mark, the first gospel author. Let's talk about sort of how these books come about, you know, the different books of the Bible, in what context they're written, in what context they're set, because the setting is different from when they're written, and then how they progress and how they're influenced by other. And so I'm going to say a couple of things to tee you up on this, David. Sure. The other is this. I really get a sense that this Hellenization thing is pretty big when it comes to influence on these authors. Just like the authors of the Torah had pre-existing material to work with, the stories that they're telling about the creation of the world and whatnot are very similar to those of the peoples around them. These ancient Near Eastern myths that we can still read today. You know, Oxford World Classics has a book of ancient Near Eastern myths, and you can read it. This is not to say that they were copying. It's just that everybody I'm talking to, everybody I'm writing this for, knows these stories. So now I'm going to use these stories to make my point. And the Quran comes to my mind because you can really see this in the Quran. If you're reading Quran, you're supposed to already know the Bible stories. The Quran is making a point, a new point, out of stories that are already familiar or supposed to be familiar to its readers, which is interesting because I don't know that many Muslims actually read the Bible, but this is the idea, right? That they have the Torah, the Injil, the the Gospel, and the Psalms of David, and you're supposed to know those stories, and now I have a new point to make with what I'm saying in this text. So I think we can say that the same thing is happening here in the New Testament. Going back to what you said about the mysteries, I'm not saying that the author of John is intentionally copying sort of the pattern, if I could put Mm. it that way, of of Euripides' Bacchae. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of similarities. I can imagine the author doing that and then saying, like what you said earlier, David, you know that God who dies and is resurrected, you know, Bacchus, everybody knows who I'm talking about, right? Okay. Jesus is just like Bacchus, only he's the real deal, right? It seems like this at times, especially Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Acts. But if I could comment on what you said earlier, which is, I think there is a whole entire corpus or body of available writings that was known in the ancient Near East, leading in the New Testament, and after the New Testament, that we don't know about at all. That I think appears in books like the Quran and in the various Enochs of ancient times and other accounts. Let me start with this by saying we have this very narrow view, for example, of priesthood. Well, it was Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, you know, and and so on down through. It's like this really select narrow chain. But then, you know, when you looked at someone like Abraham, who was Melchizedek? Where did Melchizedek get the priesthood from? And where did, you know, who's he? He's not in, you know, he's not in a typical lineage. And then the big kicker for me is Moses going to Jethro out in the land of the Midianites in, in the eastern borders of Egypt. 
and coming across this fellow named Jethro in the Quran Shu'ayyib, where on earth did he get the Melchizedek priesthood from? He's a descendant, it seems, of Keturah, the third wife of Abraham that nobody ever reads about, right? And so I think that the priesthood is broader than we think it is, and that we've narrowed it, and I think the corpus of writings available is broader. Another example of that would be things like the infancy gospels of Thomas, that were available in the early Christian times. And, you know, you have the hypothetical Q gospel. Right. But in the Quran, you don't have a nativity, but you do have a birth of Jesus in Surat Mariam and other places as well. And that is where she's traveling alone, pregnant, and God causes a stream to appear to give her water in the middle of nowhere and a date tree, and she can shake the dates and have food for her and Jesus. And there's no Joseph anywhere at all in that. And they actually found in the 1990s, while they were building a highway in Israel near the Mar Elias Monastery between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, they uncovered a whole church that had been destroyed after the Council of Ephesus in 431. This church was destroyed. And the church is the Ecclesia Cathismatis, which means the church of the seat of Mary. It's octagonal. It has a palm tree mosaic in it with all these figs on it. It's the story of Mary without Joseph. So this was known by Christians. It was a monastery and a church in the ancient Near East. And so you have within Christianity all of these alternative readings. So one of the questions of how we get the New Testament text, one of the questions of text is going to be all the texts you root out, but we see them appear in the Quran and we see them appear in other places. So I think we often forget there was a textual richness to early Christianity that has been cut out from the New Testament as we understand it. And that reminds me, you know, there's, I, I always tell people this, there's something in the Quran, there's a teaching in the Quran that appears also in the LDS temple text. When you go to the LDS temple, you'll learn about what is written nowhere in the LDS standard works, but is in the Quran. And I never tell people where it is. And it's not because it comes from the temple. It's because I want you to read the Quran, so I'm not going to tell you what it is. Well, I know what you're talking about, too, but but at any rate, it raises this very question you're talking about, is how did the New Testament even come to be as we know it, and is there no value to these alternative texts? Or Of course it, there is. Well, and that's the question. This has come up multiple times when we're doing Old Testament as well, right? Is, is all these pseudo-epigraphal or apocryphal or just non-canonical texts? And why do we have the ones that we have in the canon? And what are we to do with these ones that are outside of it? And there's so many, it's hard to even decide on which ones you would go after personally. But, you know, scholars have also given us an idea of, of which ones might have a little more validity to them or a little more value to them. So there's a place to start with that. This is a very big topic. You know, how were the texts that we have canonized and why were they canonized and and all that. It's, it's an enormous topic. People have written, you know, volumes and volumes on this. One of the important points for me as I was reading things about this period and, and why texts were included is that the texts that, that we have, particularly the Gospels, one of the main reasons they became the four Gospels, so to speak, is because they were those that were most widely used by the Christian community for a long period of time. And so they became perpetuated over time and became de facto used. Now, it isn't to say that there weren't others. You know, there are lots of different Christian communities and, and basically they all had their own gospel. But 
these became the the most widely used. And so while it's hard to know where to sort of draw the line, at some point somebody did that, right? And so we're left with what we have now. But there are other things that we could go to and even stuff that's been discovered more modernly, more recently, like Gospel of Thomas, right, out of the Coptic scripts and stuff. So there's a lot of stuff to go to. The reason we have what we have is because of almost 2,000 years of tradition of these texts being passed down within Christian communities. So Let me kind of respond to that. I agree with you. And I guess the question for me is why we include what we include, but just as importantly, why things were excluded. Yeah. So let's take the Gospel of Luke, which may be one of these that we would say is became a de facto text. My question is, which Gospel of Luke? Because there were variants of the Gospel of Luke used in the ancient world. David, you mentioned Bart Ehrman, the New Testament scholar. He says that when he was looking at manuscripts, because he's actually touched them, we have right. it, we just have this printed canonical text, you know, that no two of them were alike. Right. They're hand copied, they're handwritten. Well, here's a big point to make on that regard. The Gospel of Luke was used by an ancient sect called the Ebionites. And the Ebionites, if you kind of want to look at major divisions in these early sects of Christianity. The Ebionites were the ones that held that you had to become a Jew first, then you could become a Christian. So you had to be like Jesus. Jesus was a Jew first, then a Christian. I know that doesn't make sense that Christ is a Christian, but that was the notion is you had to be a Jew first, which probably would discourage a lot of adult males from converting, if you follow me. Yes. Mm -hmm. The other were the Marcionites, which were, were was a Roman sort of version of this, which didn't, didn't want to have much to do with all things Jewish. And so they were major influences. Right. Old Testament was a, a demon god. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, there is the question in ancient Christianity, what do you do with this strange book about donkeys that talk? And what exactly are we doing with this text? Here's my point. The Ebionites did not believe Jesus was born the Son of God, but that Jesus became the Son of God. And the event that triggered it was the baptism of Jesus, in which Psalms is quoted in Luke, saying, At the baptism, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And so they would say he wasn't born the only begotten. And so the version of Luke used by the Ebionites didn't have the first two chapters in it. The nativity story that we cite, you know, and it came to pass in those days, in the days of Caesar Augustus, the decree went forth, all the worship, that doesn't even exist in the Ebionite version of it. And so you have to ask yourself, why was that included? Well, that's because some people, I think, made the determination that the doctrine was going to be that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the only begotten in the flesh, and was the incarnation of God in the flesh, and that was going to be the story that was told. Now, I don't, we don't know that there was a deliberate determination, but that's the one that was accepted, and I'm fine with it personally, and I love Christmas, so I'm, I'm good with the whole thing. And we read Luke 2 in my family at Christmas Eve. We do too. So there's a real question of even among the Lukes that were available which one you choose. And so, and then of course, if I were to say excluded text, just on the question of text, I think the comment I would make is, it seems that whoever's doing the choosing really didn't want to have anything to do with mystics or mysticism, and they really didn't want to have anything to do with women. I hate to say that, but I'm just saying, yes, Mary Magdalene's text is a you know, conversation that Mary Magdalene are not included. They're very powerful. 
and maybe I'm making disparaging remarks. I admire people like Athanasius that chose canon lists. I do. And I think they did the best they could do. I'm not saying that they are manipulating intentionally. They're working out of a cultural context too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to agree with you, David. I took an approach of studying the opposite of what it is I want to learn about. So I looked at what texts weren't included, and I asked myself, why weren't these included? And I came up with the same answer you did. We're, we don't want mystics, and we don't want women. We're priests. We want obedience. We want money. We want the institution, right? It's about the institution. It's about the outward. It's, it's mostly the exoteric, not the esoteric, right. not the divine feminine, not the mysticism. Those are a couple of things. But then you got the Gospel of John. Yes, and that's maybe an exception. And well, the Gospel of John is, I agree with you fully, and Paul. Yeah. The word pleroma, I know, is mentioned in Colossians, and pleroma is a term that's used directly from Gnostic texts, right? The divine power, the area of full divine power, the region of full divinity, the pleroma, and so, Paul was a great inspiration to the mystics of monastic Christianity for centuries. And so, I think you're right, but Paul is often understood as a historical text. And when we read in Come, Follow Me, I think we're going to read John in the context of the other Gospels a lot. Ben and I will have to bring out the differences while we're bringing out the similarities. Now, David, who are Gnostics? And, and I know they're uppercase and lowercase Gnostics. Let's talk about that. Okay. Very briefly, how mysticism develops in Christianity and elsewhere, eventually in Islam with Sufis. And, you know, I'm a Sufi practitioner. I'm a Sufi master and guide. And so I'm deeply embedded in this, this tradition. And the Gnostics prior to the discovery of the Nag Hammadi texts in 1945 were known primarily through their enemies. And so, you know, that as a historian, that's always, you got to take that with a grain of salt. The word Gnosticism refers to knowledge, but the way they use it is the knowledge within, not episteme, a knowledge of a fact. Albany's the capital of New York and Carson City's the capital of Nevada, which really doesn't have a lot to do with salvation, right? And so they wouldn't be interested in an external generalized theology. They would be interested in an internal spiritual development. Gnostics are people that would take the saying of Jesus, the kingdom of God is within you, and teos, I think, is the Greek word which means literally within, which later, especially Protestants, but not entirely, but especially Protestant sects would say, it means among you. No, the Gnostic would say, no, it's within you. The kingdom you're building has to be built within. I presented a last year's Sunstone, and my presentation was, my soul is my mansion, and I am already in it. And so when Jesus said, many mansions, what I'm saying is, I'm not going to go to some place and, and they're going to have all the ice cream I can eat or, you know, whatever. It's that where I'm going to abide eternally is where I'm already at, and I better get on with the business of doing it. That's very much a Gnostic concept. You know, that reminds me of something Seneca said. He said, if you would like to have a great kingdom, then rule over yourself. That's it. Right. Now you're talking about lowercase Gnostics, right? This is lowercase Gnosticism because yeah. the, the uppercase Gnostics, this is where people are against them, right? I think more the heresiologists, you know, starting with Irenaeus oh, yeah. and people even today are going to be against, against the idea that you have to have some kind of secret knowledge to gain the kingdom of God, right? And that's, that's confusing, right? That's confusing the inner and the outer. Right. But they say the knowledge is the knowledge of self. Right. Well, they would they would go to the Oracle of Delphi and, you know, Gnothi Seoton written above it, know thyself, right? They would say, you want real knowledge? Know your soul. The unexamined life is not worth living. And all of these sayings are very much in line with the Gnostic belief. And so 
what happens, I think you're right, is in large measure the esoteric, the internal, what I would call the spiritual versus the religious, is discouraged. And we do talk about it. I mean, scriptures say, go pray, but what on earth does that mean? As a missionary, I taught the four steps of prayer, and I look back on them, I go, it's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I called my prayers ego prayers. I was asking for stuff. I was counseling God. I was saying, you know, if you really love me, you're going to make sure I get this job. When I taught, my students would express it to me. I, I didn't study for your test tomorrow, but I fasted really hard Sunday. I fasted extra hard Sunday. And I'm going, you're already obligated to fast Sunday. That shouldn't merit grace. You're already supposed to do that anyway. So the notion is of internal honesty and knowledge. And that's what gnosis means, the knowledge within. In Arabic, it's ma'arifa, right? It means the, the, the knowledge of one's own soul. That's tough, and that comes from mystical practices. It doesn't come from just thinking about it or imagining it or reading about it. So anyway, just very quickly, Gnosticism is a participant in a very ancient spiritual set of traditions. We find it at the temple at Delphi, the oracle at Delphi. We find it in Dante when he gets to the top of Mount Purgatory, and Virgil says, I crown and miter thee over thyself. Crown, king, miter, priest or bishop. I make you king and priest over your own soul. You've gone through hell, you've denied the sins, you've climbed Mount Purgatory, you've repented, and you've removed not only the act of sin, but the stain of sin upon the soul. You are now pure, and so I make you king and priest, not over some external kingdom, not over some church, over your own soul. And so we see this mystical Gnostic tradition isn't just Christian, but the Gnostic movement in Egypt made it Christian-centric. Does that make sense? They, they, they adapt it to Christian theology. I kind of wanted to go back a little bit to our discussion of the texts themselves but just touch on a couple points and and one is that you know in in the stuff I was reading an important point that was brought up just about the organization of the text is that again when we were doing the old testament I always have this tendency to to look at scripture as being placed in some sort of chronological order right you know we start with creation and then we proceed from there and then we end with malachi and and we go into Jesus and then we end with Revelation, which foretells the end of the world. And, you know, this is this chronological progression, right? In terms of like how it's put together, you might see it that way. But the actual texts themselves, the way that we have them organized, weren't written in that order. The letters, all of the letters that we have actually were written before the Gospels, including Revelation. The actual writing of these texts predates the writing of the Gospels themselves. And the way that we have them placed in the New Testament, sometimes we can miss that fact. And I think it's an important fact to bring up because we're talking about the development of not just a Christian community. We've brought up that this is a bunch of different Christian communities that you know will eventually coalesce in, in one way or another but develop their own traditions, their own gospels, their own ways of, of viewing not just doctrines, but practices. We see some of this reflected in the different letters and even in the gospels themselves. And over the centuries, we've developed an exegesis that unifies everything into some sort of coherent theology or doctrine, or we've tried to, you know, <laughs> that's part of the problem with all the different sects, right? You get Luther who like just 
just wanted to throw out the whole book of James. <laughs> yes, the epistle of straw, you mean? Yes. And that's why we get the gospels lined up the way they're lined up for our reading, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, what, what did you say? Matthew 1, Luke 1, Matthew right. 2, Luke 2, and then John comes in randomly. Sure. And this is just not the order in which they're written. It's not the, really the best way to make sense of them. It's going to make it hard on us, Ben. Well, yeah, we're going to do it because this is how it's it's organized yeah. and that's just how people are going to read it. So we need to approach it that way so that, you know, we're we're commenting on on the same things and we're having that shared experience. But to bring up when these things are written also talks about a development, a progression, an evolution of this thought and doctrine and approach to the life and teachings of Jesus. Another little point, this will come up when we talk about the text, but you know, I thought I would bring it up in context of all of our discussion of Hellenization. The name Jesus is a Hellenization of Yeshua. If we were to translate that into English, we would just call him Joshua, right? We wouldn't call Jesus Jesus. We'd say, this is Joshua, which really hit me as well, because what's the illusion there? The illusion is back to Joshua, who came in and took over the land. There's different ways to approach that, but it was an interesting meditation for me to think that this man has the same name as the Old Testament Joshua, who is this, you know, arguably one of the most violent generals. And here comes Jesus and he's teaching something else. Here comes this new Joshua, right? Whose name means God is salvation. Yeah. Yes. And it's the same thing as Elias versus Elijah. One of the things I do try to mention when I was teaching at BYU-Idaho, and, and I taught history of religion, and I also I was asked in certain circumstances to teach religion courses, and I asked for to teach the New Testament Gospels on purpose because I was so much in love with the New Testament text as the core Christian message, and I'm very much disposed toward reading those things that were attributed directly to sayings of Jesus. I sort of have a hierarchy in the text. For me, things that are attributed to Jesus are more important than anything else that is said. And for me, I interpret much of the rest of the New Testament, in fact, all the scriptures, in light of what Jesus said. And to the extent that there's an argument being made that I feel maybe needs to be modified by what Jesus said or contextualized or even sometimes rejected by what Jesus actually said, I try to be particular. So when we talk about reading, that's important. You've brought up the question of meta narrative. By arranging the books the way we've arranged them, we've created a, a meta narrative, which is that there's this chronology to everything happens. And so when we read the text, we run the danger of not understanding the text because the, the meta narrative is informing us of what it means rather than text informing itself of what we should consider. Latter day Saints have other meta narratives. The plan of salvation is one of our great meta narratives, and we tend to then read what the scripture is saying by saying, oh, this is what the plan of salvation is talking about, forgetting that the plan of salvation was a meta narrative created out from various scriptures. I'm not saying it's wrong or anything, but I'm just saying the scripture came first. The other one is the great apostasy, and I've been in meetings where we'll be reading a scripture in the Sunday school class or something and say, oh, that's a great apostasy scripture. And I go, really? I thought it was talking about me. We can lose the personal dimension because plan of salvation's out there. Sacred history's out there. That's just this thing out there. It's the same problem with eschatological talk, right? You know, That's it. it it's, yeah. it's something there. It's not here. That's it. I think we sometimes run the risk of losing the personal and direct power of a text because the meta narratives have become my text. I do want to say one other thing. 
And that is, I noticed in our religion classes, I think at BYU-Idaho, but I think it's now throughout the church education system, that they don't have scripture-based classes anymore, where they won't say, we're going to do the Gospels this term. They'll say, we're going to talk about, I'm going to get this wrong, but something like testimony of the living Christ, which means that a teacher has taken again and created a meta-narrative out of texts. And so really what I'm understanding is the book of seminary teacher. I'm not reading the book of Matthew, or I'm not reading John. And our tendency in the church, I fear, is are we not just simply creating so much meta-narrative that we really don't ever read the text? We read verse here, verse there, and we understand it only as it's been presented. So I happen to be one of those advocates that just says, my most important interaction with the Scripture is me and the Scripture. And then I'll talk about meta-narratives and try to understand them. But our hierarchy of text seems to be all our sacrament meetings are now about general conference talks. You know, I'm not so much complaining as I'm saying, yeah, I heard that talk already in general conference. Where is the interaction of the person and the scripture and the witness and the testimony? I fear that we're moving further out into the orbit of secondary, tertiary, quaternary texts, and we have forgotten how to read the core canonical writings. And this is why I always say I'd like to hear more scriptures read over the pulpit. More scripture. We were encouraged not even to cite scriptures from the pulpit, at least in my state. Maybe that was at the church. They said, say the scripture, but we don't want to hear all these citations of Acts 17, whatever. And I'm going, okay, but we're further from the scripture. They want you to do a Neil A. Maxwell, where you just weave in the scripture right into your sentence and everything. To your point, David, I definitely see that that tendency. At the same time, in the actual Come Follow Me manual, every single lesson, if you call it a lesson, every single reading starts with something to the effect of, before you read any of the rest of this, read the scriptures, record your impressions. It It's like a Lectio Divina prompt essentially. But what happens is people are like, oh, I'm just going to skip that part and go down into the lesson, right? right? But it is there. At every single reading it is. section, there is this little paragraph that says, the most important part of this is to read it and record your own impressions about what you got out of the scriptures. I've seen that. But you are right that we have all of this that pushes us in the other direction. You know, all of all of these policies or or lessons or everything that that does that. Even if we're trying to do that, Ben, right? Because let's say I read that and I don't skip to the rest of the manual, and I say, okay, I'm going to read the scriptures. Well, first I'm going to start with the chapter heading. That's not scripture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's my meta narrative, right? And I already have the meta narrative with me when I go to the text, so there's really no getting around it. But let's back up and talk about how these texts come about. I want to talk about the Q gospel. Okay. So scholars have hypothesized a Q gospel that we can't find anywhere. We don't have an actual Q gospel. Where is this coming from? They're saying, if we look at the gospels in order and the order in which they were written, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, we can see in these first couple of gospels, I mean, after Mark, it looks like Matthew and Luke are copying from Mark. They're building their Gospels on Mark's Gospel. And then again, they say, it looks like maybe even there's a source underneath all three of them. We don't have it again. A proto-Gospel. Right, a proto-Gospel. And we can see by looking at what is the same and leaving aside what is different. And so this has been reconstructed. I just read the Q Gospel. You know, somebody put together a book 
Then fast forward to the find of the Nag Hammadi text and you get the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Thomas looks a lot like the hypothetical Q Gospel. This is, you know, not proof, but strengthens the argument for this, this Q source. Right? And Q, by the way, stands for Dikwela is the source in German. What do they look like? It looks like the Gospel of Thomas. It looks like sayings. It's an oral tradition. Logia, I think in Greek. Yeah, it's a collection of sayings. Sayings, yeah. Sayings. Ben, you and I did the episode on Proverbs, where I brought in other epigrams, other aphorisms, Marshall, some stuff from Marcus Aurelius. I even went back to Hindu scriptures and Confucian and Taoist scriptures. It's a lot like that, right? Yeah, the Analects are sayings. Yes, exactly. Sayings. Even the even the joke Confucius said. When I had been guessing, I was reading these, you know, quotes and I had to leave off the part that says Confucius said, right? Right. But of course, and I don't mean anything by that. These are the parts, a lot of them are the actual parts that you're talking about, David, that are the parts that is, this is what Jesus is said to have said. And so this is the Red Letter Bible. If I don't know if Latter-day Saints are familiar with the Red Letter Bible. You can get, even in King James Version or your NRSV, whichever. Do you use one, David? Yeah, rubricated text. Yeah, okay. Red tinted. It's the Jefferson one where he cut it all up. Well, that's another story. <laughs> and by the way, since you brought that up, I've read Jefferson's Bible. Jefferson said... Okay, I don't believe in these miracles and these things. He's going to take a Gospel of Thomas approach. He wants to know, what did Jesus say? He says, this is a great moral teacher. What did he say? Not what did people say about him. What did he say? And I don't have to disbelieve in anything he left out. I'm just saying, if I read the Gospel of Thomas, if I read the Q Gospel, if I read Thomas Jefferson's Bible, what I get is a shot in the arm of Jesus. And I can read the whole Jefferson Bible in a couple of hours. And I just get this shot in the arm and it feels great. I mean, I'm getting all these teachings from Jesus. That's what I want. Absolutely. Can I relate to this in just briefly in a way that was very poignant for me? And that is, I spent 18 years of my adult life in the church as the primary chorister because I have a musical background and a singing background. I loved every minute of it. I was able to say, you know, this last week I was unkind to somebody. I need to fix that. And so what did I do? Our opening primary song was, Jesus said, love everyone, treat them kindly too. When your heart is filled with love, others will love you. And I go, my Sunday's complete. People say, why do you stay in primary so much? And I go, well, in primary, we do weird things. And they go, what do you mean? I go, well, we talk about Jesus. And they say, are you saying we don't do that elsewhere? And I said, maybe I am. We talk about Jesus and it's just beautiful. So I'll leave it at that and just say, I love my years in primary as the chorister because I was able to do what you're saying, the shot in the arm, the bring it in, the remind myself of my center. That's beautiful, David. I hope I don't lighten it too much by kind of making a joke off of that. But, you know, Jesus didn't actually say that. <laughs> well, no, no, you're right. That is a that is a, a hymn text. This is actually a good point because that's something Jesus would have said right? And we accept that. And so we take this primary song and nobody says, well, Jesus didn't say that because we're all like, well, okay, but Jesus would have said that, right? Like, so that's fine. And that's actually what some of the gospels do. You know, they give us some things and it's like, okay, maybe Jesus didn't actually say that, but Jesus would have said that. Jesus would have done that. 
right? These are things that definitely fit the character of Jesus. We could take, as I've loved you, love one another. We could take, I mean, there are a lot of texts that would match that very closely, but you're you're absolutely right. So I would love to have all of my meetings be what Paul said. We talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. I would be happy to go to sacrament and other meetings for the rest of my life, and it's nothing but Jesus. Isn't there a song that says that, you know, you can have the whole world, you can have everything, you can have all the wealth, but give me Jesus. So you were hinting at this verse. I wanted to read it into the record. And we talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. We preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ. And we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. But I don't think you and I, David, are talking about, when we read that, I don't think we think it's about theology. Because we can talk about Christ and say, again, what's missing from the Q gospel, what's missing from Gospel of Thomas, we can talk about his birth and his death and the atonement and some of these ideas that look like Greek mystery cold ideas. No, we're talking about what Christ taught about how to live. The way that following Christ, when he says, come follow me, right? I can actually live my life in a way that follows his teachings and benefits my soul. Absolutely. And this becomes the internal aspect of the religion, which I think is the whole point of outward religion, is to lead to inward spirituality. If we don't get that from it, that we don't put our inward spiritual progress ahead, we run the risk of making the religion irrelevant. You know, if we don't understand that when I do ministering to fellow members of my ward that I really need to be working with their problems or their challenges or their soul, then what's the point of it? I'm not very good at that yet, but I think there's a constant call that that is made in the New Testament to come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That to me is the power of the New Testament. I would say very briefly that I think that Paul understands this by calling one the law, right? The letter and the spirit. Yes, he was a Pharisee, and and he calls himself a great Pharisee, a Hebrew among Hebrews. He was saying, you know, basically saying, you talk of your Pharisees. You go to any group of Pharisees that I'm in, and I'm the real Pharisee. They're the pretenders. And he said, perfect in my obedience to the law. And so when you go like to Galatians or other texts, he doesn't abandon the law. He says, is the law void or no? God forbid. But then he goes on to the spiritual aspect and saying, no, the the law, the religion, the outward performance is to bring you to Christ. And so he uses the Greek word pedagogos, right? That was the household servant that took the children to school. He said the law is the schoolmaster, the school slave. The law is the pedagogos, the one that walked him to school and back, to bring us unto Christ. And so it's much like Matthew 5, here's the law, here's its fulfillment. So Paul is not denouncing his Pharisaism. He's just saying it had its place, and it has a place. But if I forget that, if I make the religion God, then I have stepped out of bounds. So that's how I would put what we're saying here. We can talk about this in terms of a finger that points. You know, you talked about mysteries earlier and the Greek origin of the word. You said secret, sacred. It means to close the mouth, the the word that it comes from, right? And there are two senses in which we can take this. On the one hand, the things shouldn't be spoken. 
right? These are mystery cults. We have been initiated. We don't share that knowledge that an initiate has with the uninitiated. On the other hand, there's the idea that the things that we're dealing with, the mysteries, right, we call them, the mystical things that we're dealing with, cannot be put into words. And so all of these words that we have, even the red letter ones, are just words. We have to go beyond the words. That's where Ben, that that part at the beginning of every chapter in the Come Follow Me manual, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? What can I get out of these words from the Spirit as I'm reading? What speaks to me now? How about now? Now matters too, right? When it comes to rhetoric, these New Testament authors, they, they know, especially Matthew knows his Greek rhetoric. There are different words for time in Greek. You know, one is we know chronological comes from chronos, which has to do with the order in which things happen. But there's also kairos in rhetoric. And kairos is all about the right time. And there's something about even sartes biblicae, even this idea of just opening up to a random page. And what does it have to say to me? It works. I think there's a lot of power in that. But to close off what you're saying in the context of Paul, I think we can see this in his writings when he said, I was caught up under the third heaven where I saw and heard things that is not lawful for man to write. And you can take that to say maybe he was commanded not to say them. But you can also say lawful in the sense that it's not possible to speak about it. That's Dante going into hell and to purgatory and paradise. I was taken to these three heavens. You find that in Muhammad's Mirage. You find it, and there's a whole body of literature about being taken, Nephi's taken into an exceedingly high mountain, taken by an angel, or Ezekiel being grabbed by the hair of the head in Babylon and taken by an angel and shown the temple at that time in Jerusalem. There are these things that probably can't really be said that do pertain to that. In fact, I think that's why we have different accounts of the first vision story. How do you talk about seeing God? It's a light brighter than the sun at noonday, or it's a fire that didn't consume the trees. He doesn't have words for it. He's searching for him, and people say he's lying. And I go, actually, I think it's probably an indicator that he's telling the truth. We've talked about this a few times, Christopher, you know, the, the difference between, you know, you shouldn't say it versus you can't say it, right? And I kind of look at those in, in an exoteric, esoteric sense that the true experience we have is that you can't express it. But what we do is we ritualize that and we create a symbol out of it. And we do something, you know, like we do in, in the temple where we create something where it's like, okay, this is something you keep secret on purpose. You shouldn't do this. Yes, technically you can, right? But you shouldn't do this. And, and why? Why would you do that? Well, because this is to remind you that there is an experience you're to be seeking that is an experience that you can't express. The symbolism is to point you to the gaining and reflecting and contemplating, meditating upon that experience. But it's not the thing in and of itself, right? Again, we, we, we often get caught up in those exoteric things, but there's just pointing at the other thing. Right. The words are not the experience. I like the pointing metaphor. Yeah, the, the words are like the finger pointing at the real, the real with a capital R, right? So if I'm looking at the finger, I'm missing the point. I'm supposed to look where the finger is pointing at the real. Maybe this is a good time to bring in, we said it in pre-show discussion, there's actually a couple of things I want to mention from our pre-show discussion. David, I remember you saying in pre-show discussion that you're reading these texts for wisdom and that you'd be happy to read 
what was it, a gum wrapper, if you could find wisdom on <laughs> I it? I made a joke, yeah. Right? It's, that's, I get that. What do we do when we're reading and we have an experience that doesn't match our belief? This is something we said we deal with. You know, if I were to be personal, we, A, we don't have time and I'm not inclined to fully do it, but I had several of these experiences during the extended illness and death of my daughter. I thought the scriptures were saying one thing, but it was taught to me it meant something I didn't know. And it was telling me the hard lesson that her loss was coming, that this was unfolding, and trying to figure out what it really means to say, thy will be done with something precious on the altar of sacrifice. So these can be hard lessons. They can be very, very difficult things to learn when I realize that God is not who I thought God was, that I decided God, God was. And I have a choice. We could call it a faith crisis if you want. For me, what a faith crisis is, where what I've decided to believe or what I've been told to believe does not match my experience. There's a collision between my experience and my belief, whether it's my own belief, an assumed belief, or something I've been taught that causes me then to question my belief and so, as a result, I, I can go through what we call a faith crisis. Now, I would not trade what I learned from my daughter's life and death for any other set of experiences in my life. They are of the greatest worth to me, although they were exceptionally painful and filled with, with a grief that remains with me today. They are also filled with a spiritual power. And so, I think we need to learn to welcome the faith crisis, because it reveals to us where we've misplaced our faith. For the mystic, the faith crisis is what you look for. You search for it. We don't look for confirmation because we really don't know anyway. So when we search only for confirmation, then we're searching to confirm ourselves, not to necessarily, I, I don't mean to speak too broadly, but we run the risk of not confirming ourselves in our soul and with God. Often we become disillusioned and decide that this means I can't remain in a, a space that's been there for my whole life. And so when we read a text, we can often run into these faith crises, so to speak, where what I've thought no longer matches what my experience is. And I think this is a great opportunity to look at a text in a different way. Second of all, what are my expectations of this ancient text that has been reworked and worked and translated and handed down over time in all of these ways that, that somehow it has from an oral tradition to a written tradition to its version in, from Q into Mark and into Matthew? And I look at all this and I, I really expect it to be something it's not. I expect it to be a coherent, historiographically defensible text, and I'm going, prepare to be disappointed, because your belief will not comport with your experience. So why would we set ourselves up for a historiographical failure? I look at a lot of that, and I go, if you're so into the historiographical nature of this, that it has an external, provable consistency in time, you're going to be disappointed. I don't understand what the point is of that, because I don't believe the Book of Mormon is true or correct or whatever because of some externally provable historicity, which usually has less support factually in the world than it has support. When we look at the historical Jesus, we don't have a lot of historical information that demonstrates his existence. And I'm going, well, if you want to be a Christian, then what's the point of worrying about whether we do or not? You're just going to have a faith crisis. You're setting yourself up. Now, as to wisdom texts, 
this comes from my Sufi mysticism. It's been a powerful lesson for me, which is that I read the scriptures for internal spiritual guidance far more than I read them for anything that can be external approvable. We talked about this ourselves in the Quran where it says, let there be no compulsion in religion. Truth stands clear from error, wherefore let a person choose. We don't have to defend these texts externally. The truth of the text is in the text. And so what is the truth of the text? It's what helps you along your spiritual path. My view of how we read this text is, yes, I look at externalities, and we've talked about a lot of them, context. I look at what it actually says. I try to do all of those things. But in the final analysis, the most important thing about a text is the way that it helps me to improve my soul and to approach God and Christ in the most perfectible manner. So that would be my view of historicity. Now, does that mean it's not important to other people? Of course, it can be important to other people, but my response is just prepare yourself to be disappointed. These texts were not written to be histories, and they come out of traditions like the Book of Mormon. We really don't know what was on the plates that Mormon had available to him when he made his abridgment. We don't know what was left out. There's a, just a lot we don't know. And so to find it historiographically confusing, to me, is to be expected. Seek for the wisdom and the teaching and the spirit and the spiritual development would be my, my advice on that. I'm reminded obliquely of a saying attributed to Epicurus, which is, vain is the word of the philosopher that doesn't heal human suffering. I'm looking for healing. And anything beyond that is just vanity. And when I say vanity, it reminds me of Kohelet, right? Of Ecclesiastes, right? Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. You know, David, you brought up how in life you have a conception of how things are and then you have an experience that doesn't match your conception of, or your belief of how things are. And, and I've heard this analogy that I think fits really well with this concept. And it's like you have a map of how reality is supposed to be. As you journey through the actual reality, you're looking to the map for guidance but occasionally you come across parts in your journey that don't match the map. If you're not willing to correct your map or adjust what you have on your map to match reality, if you want reality to match your map, that is where you're going to run into a crisis. You have to be willing to adjust your map to match reality, not the other way around. You guys have kind of spoken as to how you're approaching the New Testament, what you what you hope to find out of the scriptures. And, and I have the same types of, of aspirations. I think how I might say it is that I'm looking for an experience with God that helps me correct my map, right? Helps me refine whatever conception I have of reality so that I can maybe stumble a little less as I walk along. <laughs> make it more reliable. You know, I love your analogy because maps are projections of three-dimensional realities onto two-dimensional paper. You have to adopt a projection, a Mercator projection or whatever. And when I taught geography, even to my college students, sometimes they go, Africa's not that big. And I'll go, it's the second largest continent in the world. No, Europe's bigger than Africa. And I'm going, it's the projection, friend. In other words, there's a built-in bias, and misperception. The second one that came to me while you're talking is, we better draw our map in pencil and have a good eraser because it's going to have to be perfected along the way. And in the final analysis, 
It's your map. It's not anybody else's map. And that is good. In our meetings, sometimes we demand that we all mean the same thing when we read a scripture, that it means this. And that's how, you know, like that's a great apostasy scripture. And I'm going, that's a great way to take the power of the scripture out of your own life. So that would be my response to that. Well, David, I think we just wrapped it up without meaning to. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Do you have anything else you want to say before we close? Thank you for having me and listening to me. I often worry that these are the random babblings of a madman, but at the same time, my madness is mine. <laughs> it's my meaning. Well, it's okay. We just finished reading the Old Testament. We, we know how this goes. <laughs> we got lots of random babblings of madmen. We, we, we heard lots of ravings of madmen, you know. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, uh, full of sound and fury signifying nothing, to quote Shakespeare. Yes. But, uh, I, love I wanted line. to tell you, though, I think what you're doing is very important to many of us who are in the church or just believers in general and who are looking for guidance that we have many forms of guidance available to us. We have inspiration, revelation. We have the intimations of our own heart, as the scripture would tell us. We have the ability to compare and contrast our experience with texts and with scriptures. And so as long as we're on the path of trying to find the power of these texts in our own life, I think we're on a good path. I'm glad there are people like you out there that want to talk about this and Maybe someone will listen to this and think, huh, I hadn't thought about that before, and maybe it will be a great blessing to them, and that would be my wish. So thank you. God willing. Thank you. Amen. Well, thank you again for being with us, David. Thank you for being with me, Ben. As I always say, I couldn't do it without you. I know you've done it without me, but I couldn't do it without you. (laughs) Thank you, Christopher. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I am Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson.